need that, in which we are praying one for another. And we want to do that. Now, back there on that back uh, is what you call an alliance witness. Uh, it's about the alliance. Uh, we went on this year as a church, and we ordered 50 of them every time they come out for that you can have one, read it. It's good reading. It's good encouragement to the heart. Plus, it allows you to see what the Alliance is doing around the world. So pick up one of those magazines, take it home, take it to your doctor's office after you've read it, and leave it on the table for somebody else to read. Take it to a place where you work. Put it on the table, put it in the lunchroom. Allow others to read it. Share it. But take it home. Read it yourself. Amen? And be encouraged by it. And I hope that you do that because I tried this year to be able to get one in everybody's hand. And the way I said I would do that, we just went on and paid for it as a church. So take one of the magazines and use it. Use it to evangelize just by putting it down, like I said, on doctor's table or wherever you're at, wherever you work at, after you've read it or after you've read it, give it to a neighbor to read. Amen? Y'all get awful quiet. <laughs> I tell you. Well, today we're going to continue with Revelations, and what we're going to talk about is three witnesses. Oftentimes, that's not brought up. But we want to talk about three witnesses that share a truth with us. Now, we need to understand something about Revelation. All we know about Revelation is going to be tough times. It's going to be crisis. It's going to be miserable. And it's going to be this. During the time of tribulation, trials and testing, people are going to be saved. Thousands of people will be saved. The difference may be in that time and this time, there's almost like a line drawn in the sand. Either you're going to be on this side or you're going to be on this side. And what's going to determine that also is going to be the heart of the people and a mark that each one will receive. And we're going to talk about that mark some. But what I want you to know, the biggest thing that is taking place here is the battle or the confrontation between a great lie and truth. And sometimes we overlook that. That there's a great lie that's being poured out in this end time, more so than ever before. But today, in the time we're living, we ought to see it approaching more and more and more of it. Because what's trying to be removed from society and from our homes and our world is any thought about God. That is slowly dissipating and disappearing and eroding little by little by little. 
And we're seeing that more and more. But in that book of Revelation, what we really also are witnessing is that battle, an intense battle over a lie and over truth. Have you ever seen a child that will lie and mom or dad is saying, tell me the truth now. And they insist on telling what? The lie. And mom and dad said, did you tell me the truth? Oh, mom and dad, I already know the truth. If you tell me the truth, I won't punish you. And boy, still that. That's the way we are as adults. God is giving out truth. And we rather believe our lie than to really accept the truth. And I'm going to bring this up again later on, but if you remember in John with Pilate, Pilate asked the question, what is truth? That is the question that's really being asked today. What is truth? Is it Islam that is true? Is it Buddhist that is true? Is it some other ism that is true? Is it Jehovah Witness that is true? Even to the area of Protestantism, is baptism, is, is Baptist true? Is the Alliance true? Is the Apostolic true? Which group is true? That's being asked more and more. What is true and what we need to understand, truth lies in one book called the Bible. And each one of us has been challenged to study it for ourselves. To study it. If you're not studying it, you'll believe anything. And when you hear something, you cannot determine if it's true or if it's false. Only thing you know is that's what that person might believe or that's what that person's trusting in. But you have no idea if it's really true or not. And what God wants us to know is the truth. Church is not about happy time. Church is not about jumping up and down, running all around, making a bunch of noise. Church is about learning. Allowing yourself to be educated in the word of God. That you might know it, for that you can live it day by day. Now there's a religious group, and there are those who are sincere Christians who study this word, want to know more of this word. This week I was down in my basement and I was pulling out some notes and revelation that I may have did 10 years ago, comparing those notes with the notes that I'm doing today. And, and there's different things that I'm still yet discovering in revelation that I didn't see back then. So even with some of the Greek words, when I look at some of the Greek words, they're Boy, they're bringing on a different meaning than what they did back at that time. Every time you go back to God's word, when you think you know it, you discover something new. It's an inexhaustible book. You'll never know it all. Now, again, what we see in that book of Revelation is that confrontation. 
So let's pray before we get there. Father, we pray that you might minister to our hearts. That you will remove us, Lord, for a few minutes from all of our busyness in the world. And that, Lord, you will help us, O oh God, to be the men and women that you've called us to be. We're not perfect. You didn't call us to be perfect. You called us to be godly. You called us to be holy. You called us to be a people who are separated from this world. Would you help us to live in such a manner? Would you help us, Lord, to deeply trust you for our daily provision? That you would teach us to trust you for everything in this life. And Lord, help us not to lean on our own understanding, but to seek the wisdom that comes from above. And Lord, we ask that you might teach us as we sit at your feet, and we'll give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the praise team has stole most of my time. I got to remind them quarter after they're supposed to be there, because if I hold y'all another 15 minutes or so and charge it to them, boy, See, and I don't want to disappoint my nieces, my grandchild, not my niece, but my grandchild, because they said, boy, when they was coming up here, they said, oh, we're going to go to church, we're going to be in church till 4 o'clock, so I want to keep y'all till 4 o'clock, I don't want to disappoint them. <laughs> but we're going to look at this confrontation that takes place. Because, see, Satan has built those who will testify for him and share his lie. And God has those who will share his truth. The Antichrist, the image, and the beast will share the lie. Now, you need to understand, the Antichrist is a living person. The image is a living person. And the beast is a living person. These are all everyday people who somehow Satan has taken control of their life. And Satan's in the background directing, just like he is today. There's a lot of things that are happening that comes from Satan because he's in the background directing it. Now, he wants to spread this lie about God, that the true God is not really God. But he sets himself up to be God. And people are going to fall for that because people want something that somehow they can really envision and manage and control. And see, God, we're not going to manage him and we're not going to control him. He will manage us and control us if we allow him. He won't force himself on us. He won't force himself. But that Antichrist and that image and that beast, they're going to support the lie that Satan wants to spread. Now, God is the only one, and you need to understand this principle. God is the only one who can confront a physical attack on his truth. God is the only one who can truly confront a physical attack on his word. God is the only one who can speak against a lie. So when you hear someone 
say something about God or something about the word or scripture, if you don't use this to defend, then there's nothing to say. Your opinion is just your opinion. Your thought is just your thought. This is not yours. This is God's word. And we speak God's word against that which comes against his word. Because he defends his own. He doesn't. God's truth is never forced. And that's one of the things we have to be very careful as Christians. We talk about being bold. Because we're bold and we can stand up and say some things when other people may not, does not mean that I am trying to force something on somebody or I'm being arrogant or I'm trying to overpower or I'm trying to show off how smart I am. No. But humbly we share what God's word says. Go with me to Second Thessalonians chapter t- chapter one. Is it two? Chapter two, verse four. Second Thessalonians chapter two and verse four. Uh, let's pick up in verse 3. He says, don't let anyone deceive you. Or in other words, don't let anybody lie to you. Don't allow anybody to tell you a lie about God and you believe it. Now, if you don't know the word, you allow people to tell you all type of religious stuff. But it's the word that becomes your defense. It's the word that repels that which is not true. And he simply says, don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness, or Satan, is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called what? God. He will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped so that he sets himself up in God's temple. Now here comes the lie. Proclaiming himself to be God. Proclaiming himself to be God. You know one of the most confusing things for people today is to choose or to really know the living God, the one and true God. That's confusing. Because we have so many options out here, so many choices out here. You got this group saying, I worship the true God. You got this group saying, I worship the true God. You got this group saying, I worship the true God. Well, which one is really the true God? And you know how humanity has solved that? Humanity has solved that issue by simply saying, They're all God, just with different names. No, they're not. No, they're not. But we look for an easy solution. And our easy solution 
is to take everything that is religious, everything that says it's God, and we say, it's all the same God. Well, God wouldn't have me worshiping here one way. And over in India, you got over 3,000 different gods. And they all worship those gods different ways. So when you walk into the temple, you got a monkey that is God. You look over here, you got a half elephant that's a god. Then you look over here and you got a woman that is a god. Then over here, you got this blue man that is a god. And you can just walk through the temple. And mind you, when you go through the temple, because you can't carry any dirt in, you got to take your shoes and socks off. So the doctor warned me before I went to India, they got a little worm in India that gets on the bottom of your foot, <laughs> gets in, and works its way up to your intestines. And he said, if you go into the temples now, Pastor Brown, you got to be careful. <laughs> How are you going to be careful with something you really don't even see? <laughs> but I wanted to see the inside of the temple. And all these different gods that they set up. It's amazing. And I wanted to talk to one of their priests. And we talked about one of their gods that is similar to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But he comes back every so many years to, to re-cleanse the earth. And I thought, hey, we got one that's coming back one time. <laughs> Jesus Christ. You know. And what you want to be able to do is take scripture and share it with individuals in the smallest degree, in the smallest way. And he says, don't be deceived. And he says, he will set himself up in the temple proclaiming himself to be God. Now, Satan is a liar. He tells us that in John 8, He's the father of lies. So whatever is going to cause itself to distort itself against the truth, basically comes from Satan. If you read the Bible and you get an understanding of the Bible, then don't allow somebody else to take you off course. You stay with that word of God. Because that's a foundation. That's a sure foundation. That's something you can trust in. That's something you can stand on. You don't leave it. You hold to it. No matter what they say, you turn to them and truthfully say, this is what is written. Remember what Jesus did to the devil when he was being tested in the wilderness? It is written. It is written. All you're saying is this. God's already spoken to this issue. God's already spoken to that. God's already said, he said this. Now, you've got to decide which one is true. Because, see, Satan is a liar, and God is not. Go to Matthew chapter 5 and verse 18. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 18. He says, I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter 
nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Now look what he said. He says, my word is going to stand true to the very end till everything is accomplished. What God is promising you is this. Nothing in his word is going to change. Now I'm going to say something that, boy, may startle some of you. When you get to heaven, you won't need the word. The written word. Why? You're in the presence of the living word. You will no longer need scripture. You'll no longer need the Bible. Why? Who's in, who in heaven is going to be contesting God's word? <laughs> or God sitting on the throne? He didn't got rid of Satan and all his angels that follow him. And only those who really believe in the Lord Jesus Christ is going to enter in. So who's going to be there to contest? You won't need the written word because you're in the presence of the living word. The Lord himself. Okay? And the whole thing while we're here on earth this is always going to be contested. This is always going to be challenged. And God's promise is simply this. Not one stroke, not the smallest mark of a pen will disappear from his word until everything's been accomplished. Now, he goes on because we want to understand this here. Go to James chapter 1 verse 17. James chapter 1 verse 17. See, I'm going to keep blaming Vic. Boy, they just ate up my time. And look at that clock. It's racing faster than it's ever raced. But in James chapter 1, verse 17, because what I want to show you is this here. Satan is a liar. He's the father of lies. And he stays true to that even in the book of Revelation. But I want you to see something about God. He stays true to who he is. So in 1.17, he tells us this here. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heaven, heavenly lights, who does not what? Does not change. God does not change. He won't change for you. He won't change for me. He's not changing because the circumstances of the time. He's not changing anything about his word. It's been the same for generation after generation after generation. Historically, the Bible says the same thing. Go to Hebrews chapter 13. Again, what we're trying to establish is that God does not change. And, and, and we need to really understand that picture. Look at verse, is it verse 8? Verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and what? Forever. No change. No change. Consistently the same. Doesn't change because society changed or because men want to be this or women want to be that. Husband and wife. That hasn't changed in God's 
economy. It's still a man and a woman. One man, one woman. Husband and wife. Children. Family. That hasn't changed. Now society has come up with all kinds of things in our family. God hasn't changed his mind on that. Now, go to Romans chapter 3 and verse 4. Romans chapter 3 and verse 4. Listen to what he says. Not at all. Let God be true. Let who be true? God. And every man a what? A liar. Every man a liar. Man can come up with all kind of rules and regulations. If them individuals out in California who followed was it Jones, what, what was it, Jim, was it Jim Jones or what? If they would have really knew the word, they could have said, uh-uh, not me, not me. But they got so caught up. Now, now this is what we all got to be careful. Don't get caught up with a pastor, a preacher, a reverend, a bishop, or this or that. You get caught up with Jesus Christ. And you follow him. When you get caught up with a man, you can be misled very easily. And that's what you don't want to happen. That's what you don't want to happen. You want to hear the word of God, practice the word of God, live it out, and see what God does in your life. Now, as we go into Revelations, I want you to go to chapter 7 with me. That's where we first pick up about the 144,000. Have to understand something here now. The 144,000 are a select group. They're chosen by God. Now, because they're chosen doesn't mean everybody else is lousy, is worthless. That's not what it means. All down through history, all down through biblical history, God has always selected certain people for things. That doesn't mean other people couldn't have done it. That's why God has never, never crushed. Billy Graham said this, God allowed me to meet the man that he first called to be who God made me be. <laughs> that God first asked somebody else to do what Billy Graham did. And Billy Graham had the opportunity to meet that man. And he simply said no. And Billy Graham said yes. And from that point, look what really happened in a Billy Graham's life that could may have happened in somebody else's life. You need to remember something. God is not so hard-pressed that he needs you. And that's why the scripture tells us, whatever your hands find to do, do it with all your might and all your heart for the glory of God. And we all ought to all be just, thank you, Lord, that you give me the privilege of doing this or that for you. I like what James tells me. James will remind me real quick sometime. Pat, I'm not doing this for you. I'm doing this for the Lord. That's all right. See? 
Sometimes I wish we had more people around here saying, I'm doing it for the Lord. See? Don't do it for pastor. Don't do it for a church. You do it for the kingdom of God, and you do it for his glory and for him. Amen? And he chooses these 144,000 men, and he selects them out of the 12 tribes of Israel. He picks 12,000 out of each tribe. Now, he also mocks them. So in chapter 7, he's beginning to verse 3, he says, to the angel who was going to begin to do some harm to the earth, he says, do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the forehead of the servants of our God. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000. 144,000 that were sealed. This is the first group that is going to go out in tribulations, in a sense, and be a witness for God. These 144,000. They're chosen, but that does not mean that the others are not worthy. That does not mean the others did not love God. It means that God picked 12,000 out of each of the 12 tribes of Israel to make up 144,000 to go out and be his witness. Go over to chapter 14 in Revelation. Because now what we see here, they've gone out. They were on earth when he called them. Now they're in heaven. So what has happened? They've been killed. They've been killed. Witnessing for the Lord serving the Lord in this time. Now, it says, Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, or Jerusalem. And most likely the new Jerusalem that's in heaven. Not here on earth. And he says, And with him, 144,000. Where are they? They're with him. Understanding this, Jesus at this time is not on earth. So it has to be where? In heaven. 144,000 had his name and his father's name. Now, now, now look what it says. Written on their foreheads. Now remember over in chapter 7, it says don't harm the earth. Don't do this. Don't do that until we seal. Now understand, God is sealing his people. What did the false god do? He wanted everybody to what? Take a mark to be sealed on the forehead or in the hand. God marks his people. Now a seal, and he uses the word seal also there, because a seal, when the king's seal went on something, nobody messed with it. Nobody messed with it. And they are sealed until they have accomplished their mission of what God wanted them to do. God raised them up. Now, as you go down through that text, there's some other little things that I'd like to bring out. And he says, boy, they were sealed. 
And then it says, I heard a great sound. And when you come on down, it says, no one could learn the song except the 144,000. They learned a song that somehow praised God. Now, it doesn't tell exactly what it is, but it's a song that praises God. I don't think it would be a song that cursed God or denied God. So it had to be a song that what? Praise God. Why? Remember, go over to chapter 13 with the Antichrist or the beast of the image here. Go over to chapter 13. And in verse 4, listen to what it says. Men worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast. And they also worshipped the beast and asked. Here comes their little song. Who is like the beast? Who is like the beast? Who can make war against him? They had their song. Boy, God has his song. That his servants are singing about him. Satan had his song that his servants were singing about him. Satan had his mark that his servants had on them. God has his mark that he puts on his servants. He goes on and he says a little further. These are those who did not defile themselves with women. Now, sometimes we take that and we try to make it as though, boy, women were bad or that these men were not married. No. It, it uses the word defile as though there's something wrong with women. No. Understand what he's talking about. He's not talking about women. In the Old Testament, oftentimes God would accuse Israel of adultery. Israel was not a woman. It was a nation. But he symbolized Israel as a woman, as his wife, one that he loved. Even to a point that God says that I wrote them a bill of divorce. And he uses the woman here to illustrate spiritual adultery. Spiritual adultery. You are to be my bride, but you are worshiping this image and you're following something else, not me. See, I can say all day long, Elaine is my wife. I can say that all day long. And that could be true. But who has to say that to herself? She does. I have to remind myself, I'm her husband. I'm her husband. I'm not her husband. I'm her husband. We have to remind ourselves of that. And what it is showing us is this. When he says, did not defile themselves with women, that they made up in their mind 
that they were going to serve and worship the Lord Jesus Christ and him alone and speak his truth. And for that, they died. For that, they died. And the whole process is, is not about the woman. It's about the spiritual adultery of worshiping a false image, an idol, something that is not truly God. And it says, boy, these are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they kept themselves pure. Pure from what? They were not virgin. Many of them were married. But they did not get themselves entangled with the image or the worship of the image. Now, sometimes what we don't see is that these things are going going along at the same time. They're they're happening at the same time. Sometimes we so separate these things that we don't see them taking place. The Antichrist, the image and the beast, and the 144,000 are all functioning at the same time. And they would not bow their knee to worship this false image. And then it goes on and he says, they followed the lamb. What does it mean they followed the lamb? Remember when John the Baptist said of Jesus Christ, the lamb of God and always a lamb was a picture of a what? Of a sacrifice. That they were willing to sacrifice their life for the truth and for the Lord Jesus Christ. How many of you are willing to sacrifice your life for the truth? For the truth. To really sacrifice your life for the truth. How many of you will stand against your own family in sharing truth? How many of you would stand against a husband or a wife in sharing truth? How many of you would share with your best friend the truth? And the truth does hurt because the truth challenges me on how I am presently living. And something has to change. Something has to change. And guess one of the things people don't like to do? Change. Especially change in a manner that they themselves may oppose and don't like. But know that it needs to take place. The doctor boy, when he put that needle in my hand this past week, at least I can fold it now and it's not sticking. Well, I had this trigger finger. And when I first went to the doctor and and I showed him, and uh, she told me, boy, you got a trigger finger. I said, no, this is my trigger finger. <laughs> I know what this finger does. <laughs> and uh, she said, no, it's getting stuck. And I have to take this hand and I have to move it back. You know, Some of you have had it maybe. You know, But he told me it was going to be painful. But he said, now you can suffer the pain and the hurt for about 30 seconds. Or you can continue to suffer the pain from now on and it's only going to get worse. And I said, well, 
who's going to, you're going to tie my hand down? Tell me something about this. Because usually when something starts sticking, you start what? You want to pull, you want to jerk. He said, no, I'm going to have control of your hand. I'm going to have your wrist. The nurse is going to have this part of your hand pulling it back. You're not going to be able to move that hand. We're going to have it, but you're going to feel the needle going in there. You know. And he took his little liquid stuff and he froze the top part of it some. He said, now, it will freeze maybe just the top surface, but after I'm past that, you're going to really feel it. And I don't know if I dent his cabinet or what, because my foot was going back and I was kicking that thing. Oh, it was painful. I'm like Roscoe. I don't like needles. Yeah. The truth may hurt us, but it's good for us. The truth may hurt us for a while, but it's good for us. It allows you to become usable. And he goes on again, gets a little further, he says, boy, I like this part. In that verse 4, he says, they were purchased. They were purchased. They were purchased from among men. What does that say here? Remember, over 1 Corinthians 6, you've been purchased by the Lord Jesus Christ. They've been purchased. They've been chosen. They've been elected. Now, everybody who's in the body of Christ has been chosen, elected. If you have received the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you have been chosen by God because he's the one who took the blinders off your eyes that you might see truth. Then, from there, and Vic didn't use up all my time, see. I better put my glasses on if I can't see because I don't have... Yes, five minutes. I got five more minutes till we start communion. The second witness is the two prophets, and that's where we'll pick up next week. Go over in chapter 11. Because it's very interesting about these two prophets. Now, we'll just start into it, and like I said, we'll pick up in the next week. He says, I was given a read like measuring rod, and was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar, and count the worshipers there. But exclude the outer court. Do not measure it, because it has been given to the Gentile, a Gentile time. Now, one of the things that we do mix up revelations about, and that might be one of the reasons why we say the church doesn't exist, because we don't hear about the church after the third chapter, because now what we're talking about is Jacob's trouble in Jeremiah. We're talking about the Jewish group coming back into what God really intended them to be. And he says, now there's two witnesses. Now, if you take your commentary, depending on which commentary you use, you're going to find there's different meanings about this witness, or they boil it down to basically three people. Moses and Elijah. Moses, because he was the lawgiver. 
and then Elijah, because he was the greatest prophet. Now, both of these individuals are Jewish, and both are Old Testament. Not Gentile, not New Testament. Both are Old Testament. And yet, God brings them back. One of the reasons that is picked to be Moses and Elijah, the transfiguration who showed up. Moses and Elijah. They show up at the transfiguration. Enoch, it was said that he was taken. So some people use Enoch and Elijah because Enoch was taken up. Elijah was also taken up. Neither one of them saw death. They were taken up. But Enoch really has no real importance or value in Jewish religion or among the Jewish people. But Moses and Elijah both do. And he says these two witnesses, they're going to do something. He says, and I will give power to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Now, 1,260 days. How long is that? Approximately three and a half years. Is that on the first three and a half years? Second three and a half years. Now, I want you to take note of this because it's important. This is going on why the Antichrist, the image and the beast, and Satan is telling his lie. God sends two witnesses that cannot die. He gives them his divine protection by fire coming out of their mouth. And they're going to be sharing the truth while the lie is also being told. Can you see that picture? 1,260 days is three and a half years. We just don't know if it's the first three and a half years of the seven years or the second half. But Satan hasn't stopped just because God sent two witnesses. Satan is still running his program. But what I want you to see is this. God is running his also. Now what you need to understand today, Satan is running his program a bunch of lies and how many of us believe lies? And a lot of us do believe a lie. And we wonder why we don't get anywhere in life. We wonder why we're in the same position or the worst position we were five years ago. The only way you make progress, if you accept truth about yourself and truth about the way things operate or move. You deny that truth, you hurt yourself. Give you a little illustration. A professor says, we're going to have an exam on Thursday. And today is Monday. And you go out and party Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night. Then you go in to that classroom. Did that professor change his mind? Most likely he's going to still give his test. But you yourself have not prepared yourself 
and you go in and flunk the test, and then you want somebody to beg for you for mercy. You want to go to the professor and give him all kind of excuses why you were not ready when he gave you enough time to prepare yourself. God has given us the time to prepare ourselves before we ever die and see him. He has given us the opportunity in teaching us the truth but we're the ones who got to study it. Understand, a professor or a teacher, they give truth, but who has to study it? You got to go back to that book and you got to study that math. You got to practice those things. You, you, you got the history book. He's told you about history, he's giving you his lecture. You got to go back to that book. I never forget, professor used to tell us, okay, I'm going to give you my lecture, but read these chapters. Because some of the test is going to come out of these chapters. Not all out of my lecture, but also out of these chapters. So you need to read these chapters. Now he's told me what to do. If I don't do it, whose fault is that? God is teaching. God is teaching. God is sharing why this lie is going on. Never believe that you're going to pass something without studying. Don't believe that you're going to get a job just by chance without preparing yourself. Now, you'll get a piece of a job. You'll get something. But most likely it won't be really what you want. There's always has to be preparation for the opportunity that comes forth. If you're not preparing yourself to step up on a higher plane, you never will. If you don't prepare yourself to live better than what you're living today, you never will. If you're not willing to make the sacrifices for what it takes to improve yourself, it won't happen. You're the one who got to do the work, but it's there. And God puts his truth out here, and we're the ones who got to do the work and apply it to our lives. Yes, we are his workmanship. He wants to pour his truth into us. And the Holy Spirit wants to affect that truth in our life. For that when we're living or taking the test, and that's what life is. Life is nothing but a bunch of tests. One test after another, after another, after another. It's a test of my attitude. It's a test of how I speak. It's a test of how I dress myself. It's a test of this. A test, I get tired of taking the test. Well, die. But the thing is simply this. God has given us truth. Even though a lie is being spread. Which one would you believe? Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you and praise you for your word. And we ask, O oh God, that you might minister to us and help us to be able to discern what is true and what is right. And I pray, Father, that nobody would take me at my word, but they would do what the Bereans did. They would go back and search it out and see if it be true. 
that they would put your word to the test for themselves to see if you are an all-sufficient God, to see if you are a God that lies not, that you are a God who has a plan for their life. You're a God that wants to lift them up if they're willing to humble themselves under your mighty hand. You are a God that wants to do great things in them. Satan has told us we're not worthy. Satan has told us God doesn't want to do anything with your life. Satan has come to rob and to steal and to destroy. And he's done a good job in the lives of many people. But, oh God, I pray that you would lift us up. You would raise us up for your glory. And you would use us, oh God. I pray for some of our young people that you would set them on a plane that they would have never dreamed that they would have been on. I pray that you would allow some of them to travel to places where they would have never thought that they would have traveled. I pray for our young ladies and our young men that you would give them husbands and wives that they would have never expected that that person would have asked them to marry them. I pray, Father, that you would take us all to a new height, to a new level. Let us not be satisfied where we are. But, Lord, let us know it's just not going to drop out of heaven. There's going to be some work. There's something we have to do to help this thing to come to pass. Minister to us. Keep us from believing a lie. Keep us from being deceived. And let us love the truth, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. As we prepare for communion, we want to give God thanks. Because he has prepared this table for his people. And he tells us to take of it. To take of it. And that we ourselves want to do that. Would you men come? And we just want to praise God. Everyone who knows the Lord Jesus Christ, the scripture tells us that as often as we do this, we declare his coming. As often as we do this, we are saying that we're in love with him. There is nothing that should hold you back from receiving communion if you know the Lord Jesus Christ. Because it is a command in a sense that you do it, but it has its restrictions. If you know that you have sinned, if you know that you've done wrong, would you take the time and ask God to forgive you and wash you anew and afresh in his blood? That you can come to his table freely. That you can come and truly worship him. And knowing what the real meaning of Calvary is all about. That he gave his body and shed, shed his blood on your behalf. That he became sin for you. That you might become the righteousness of God. Understand that this is not just an ordinance. 
that the church does. It's not just a habit that we do it first month. It's more deeper than that. This involves a relationship with Jesus Christ. This involves keeping his commandments, not man's commandments, but his. And that's what we want to do. We want to serve him. We want to please him. And in doing so, we're saying to a world, he is risen and he's coming again. He's risen and he's coming again. Let nothing keep you from taking these elements. Allow yourself to be totally free through the forgiveness. If you hold yourself captive to something that says you're not worthy of taking this, then you're saying to God, you're a liar and your forgiveness is not real. And God has said he will forgive you of all sin. He'll take your sin, put it in the deepest ocean. He will send it to the north and the south, the east and the west. He will forget it and remember it no more. And what God is saying, he'll never bring it up to you again. But you allow Satan to keep bringing it up. Put it under the blood. Give it to Jesus. He says we do this in remembrance of him. Not in the remembrance of my sin, but in the remembrance of the one who has set me free from my sin. Father, we pray, oh God, for your people. That Lord, that we would honor you in taking the Lord's Supper, taking these elements. And that Lord, we would sense the blessedness of receiving these, knowing that you gave your body and shared your blood for us. And you've told us to take and eat and drink. May we do that, Lord, symbolizing what you have done for each and every one of us. And we'll give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.